Good morning. Well, today I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 14. And we're going to finish the chapter this morning beginning with verse 25 going down through verse 34. And this is one of the most, if not the most, challenging passages in all the Bible. And when I mean challenging, I don't just mean difficult to interpret. I don't think it's all that difficult to interpret, but challenging in what Jesus reveals to us as the costs of discipleship. And it's interesting that when Jesus speaks these words, Luke tells us that he's speaking to large crowds that have gathered to hear him speak and to see what he can do. For the past three weeks, we've been at the table of a Pharisee's house. And Jesus has been speaking to them. And this message is not like that. He's not set apart speaking to a select group of disciples. He's not in the temple somewhere arguing with priests and Pharisees. He's got what you would call an Easter morning audience gathered here. So you probably have a wide range of interests in Jesus from people that are just merely interest, interested in seeing what he can do and hearing what he has to say to people who have already left everything to follow him and probably a whole twilight of intermediate states in between. And that's who Jesus is addressing in this passage. And you might think that this would be the perfect time for Jesus to give that sweet message, something like the prodigal son. This would be a great time for him to give that message to the masses and to preach God's forgiveness and mercy and keep them coming back for more. But he goes in the exact opposite direction. And the words that he speaks here just hit like an earthquake. And I don't want to say that they're totally unexpected. I mean, if you read Luke carefully, you can see a little bit of a buildup. In chapter 13, Bill preached about a man who asked Jesus if there are a few that will be saved. And he said, well, you need to strive to enter through the narrow gate. But still, the words are surprising. I mean, I think if we were really picking up the gospel for the first time and we've read through Luke chapter 14 down through verse 24, this is not what we would expect to come next. But this is what the evangelist records. Beginning with verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man begin to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I remember listening to a sermon once in which a preacher said that Christianity is like anything else. If it didn't cost anything, it wouldn't be worth anything. And those words suggest that we can see this principle in other areas of our life. We were, uh, the other day I was watching You've Got Mail with my wife. That's her favorite movie. And I was tempted because we watched, at the men's retreat, we watched Neil Jeffrey give several talks. And he would always say that great gospel movie, You've Got Mail. I was really tempted to say that. But there's a scene where Tom Hanks is in a bookstore and he's looking at a book and it's a really old book. And the employee is pointing out to him all the things about the book that are unique and all the things about the book that are really special. And then Tom Hanks goes, huh, so that's why it costs so much. And the employee says, no, that's why it's worth so much. And... It's not just in economics that we come across this principle. If you think about marriage, before I got married to my wife, I had to look at the closet I was using and I had to count the cost because she was going to move into the house I was living in. And so I was about to lose a significant amount of real estate. I fare better than a lot of men do. She gave me a third. Of that closet, which I was, that was like winning the lottery. I was really happy with that. But I knew that she was going to move in, so I took my clothes out of the closet before she moved in, you know, and I folded them up and I put them away, and I've been doing that ever since. (laughs) And that's something that's a little bit more of a prosaic type example. But if you think about the nature of the wedding vows, now there's something that's a lot more solemn and a lot more serious. When you think about those words, you know, for better, for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death, until death parts you. And if you really think about that seriously, you see, wow, those are some really 
solemn, sobering promises I'm binding on myself because if Tara gets terminally sick and has to battle for years and years before she succumbs to death, you know, I have to be faithful to her during that whole time. I have to minister to her. I have to care for her. I have to love her. That doesn't give me an excuse to say, well, I didn't sign up for this. And I'm going to go find somebody else. Now, unfortunately, in the world we live in, that happens. Not infrequently. When a spouse becomes terminally sick. But if I remember those wedding vows, I remember that it's until death. And that's the way it is. And so as a husband... As a wife, you've got to count the cost before you go to the altar. Only a fool would enter into marriage without counting the cost first. And that's sensible. That makes sense to us. We get it. And the same principle applies to family. As life-changing as marriage is, it doesn't compare in my book to how life-changing having a child is. I mean, there's a real, <laughs> there's a real game Changer. And by the way, I was talking with some friends of mine the other day. I'm, I'm disappointed that too many Christians talk like the world as if parenthood is some kind of voluntary slavery that you sign up for. And we really should not talk like that. Um, when Lily was born, and, and since she's been born, I mean, we laugh more. She has brought so much more joy um, into our house, into our parents' lives, and it really is, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful blessing. Children are a wonderful blessing from God. But the, do you have to count the cost before you have a child? Because you will have to sacrifice. That much is true. You're going to lose a lot of sleep. You're going to change a lot of dirty diapers. You're going to lose a lot of free time. You know, your weekends are going to be taken up and... That's the way it is. And if you don't sit down and make the proper sacrifices, if you don't count the costs, the end result is you're going to have a miserable marriage or a marriage that ends in divorce or you're going to have a family that just falls apart. It's, it's worth, it's worth an immense amount, but it costs an immense amount. And that, that same principle extends to discipleship. Now, when we're talking about following Christ, we need to remember that this is something that as valuable as, as marriage is and as valuable as family is, Christ is more valuable. He created these things. In fact, this is not a passage which is oftentimes used, I don't think, to support the doctrine of the Trinity. But I really think Maybe it should be because only a man like Jesus, who was God, would have the right to say the things he says in this passage. If he were only a man, if he were only a prophet, he would not have the right to speak like this. But we see in the first verses, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and he talks about father, mother, wife, children, he can't be my disciple. Now, we do want to be careful here. Uh, because if we isolate Luke 14 from the rest of Scripture, it would be very easy to misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. We need to remember that in Scripture we are also commanded to honor our mother and our father. 
We are commanded as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We are told that if we don't take care of our families, we are worse than an unbeliever. And C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, writes this, How are we to understand the word hate? That love himself should be commanding what we ordinarily mean by hatred, commanding us to cherish resentment, to gloat over another's misery, to delight in injuring him is almost a contradiction in terms. So this is certainly not a license for us to hate our parents in that way. And that needs to be understood. It needs to be understood. What Jesus is talking about here is ordering our loves. He's talking about priority. So that as long as my love for my wife does not interfere with my obedience to God, there's no need for a conflict to arise. But the second she or anyone else, even myself, especially myself, gets between me and obedience to Christ, Jesus says, you have to make a choice. And choice is very politically incorrect because choice is very exclusive. Whenever you make a choice, you exclude something else. And Jesus says, when it comes to following me, you have to make a choice. And there are still many places in the world, as far as I know, if my information is correct, probably even in the United States, where if someone in the family converts to Christianity, that person is just completely ostracized by the family. I mean, I've even heard stories of families that will actually have funerals for their children that convert to Christianity. Just to make it abundantly clear that you are now completely cut off and we will have nothing to do with you. Now, that's a heavy cost. That's a heavy price to pay. And by the way, that should be grounds for us to be thankful if we were raised in a Christian home or a Christian tradition where we haven't had to suffer that kind of persecution for following Jesus. But we ought to be in prayer for those who do. That's the first requirement. He outlines three in this passage. That's the first one that when it comes to priority, Jesus comes first. And if anyone comes between us and Jesus, we, we have to just immediately go with Jesus, choose him. The second one, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I preached from this passage before, and I try not to repeat what I said last time, but I couldn't think of anything better to say. So I just remind what most of you already know. In our culture... The cross is a symbol that's embraced. It's a symbol that's loved. It's a symbol that's cherished. And by the way, I think that that's right. I think that we should embrace and cherish the cross. I think it's a great symbol. We wear jewelry with crosses. People get cross tattoos on their back. I think Bill's thinking about getting one. That'll take a (laughs) while. 
you got to count the cost, Pastor Bill. And we have crosses on shirts, clothing. But we need to remember that the audience that Jesus is speaking to, when they, when they hear those words, pick up your cross, the cross for them is nothing like it is. For, it's just an instrument of, of death and torture. It's horrific. So if we want to get a, a flavor of what this might have sounded like, we would need to imagine Jesus telling us, unless you take up your lethal injection and your cyanide pills and come and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And that's what it probably sounded like to them when they heard these words for the first time. And this, of course, ties in very closely with the last requirement. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We have to take up our cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Um, George MacDonald wrote, The whole strife and labor and agony of the Son with every man is to get him to die as he died. All preaching that aims not at this is a building with wood, hay, and stubble. And this death that leads to life involves this renunciation. And we live in a very materialistic culture, and I think it's impossible to live in one and be educated in one and not be influenced by that. I mean, we really have our presuppositions about the necessities of life, right? Until you visit some impoverished part of the world, Uganda or Indonesia, Mexico, and you see how so many people live in those areas, and you realize that a good deal of what we perceive as necessities are luxuries. I mean, when you see how these people live, you really start to get an idea of what the necessities of life really are. And it it begs the question I have to ask myself, you know, I have possessions. I can't get around that. Um, We have vehicles. We have uh, books. I've got guitars. We've got food in our pantry, clothes in our closets. And I have to ask myself, you know, if Christ required any of this for his kingdom, would I hesitate to give it to him? You know, I could say I'm just a steward. I don't own any of this. It all belongs to Christ. But until that test comes, you know, where Christ says, I need this, what's my response going to be? And it's something that we have to take seriously because the things that we own end up owning us. And they can prevent us from following Jesus, but I want to say that we need to think past just the material level of what Christ is saying here, because there's a a deeper renunciation that he's calling. There's something that's even, that we hold on to even more tightly than our material possessions, and that is ourselves. And let me explain what I mean by that, to borrow another analogy from George MacDonald, you know, when we're children, oftentimes, we're sitting in church and we see the offering plate go by and we'll ask our parents, 
can you give me something to put in the offering plate? It seems silly, right? Because, you know, my dad would just hand me the money and then I would put the money in the plate. But I did that and I really felt like I had contributed. But God, he gives us selves. He gives us selves with desires, with wants, with ambitions, with dreams. And he wants us to take those selves and give them back and put them on the altar and say that this self, my dreams, my ambitions, they belong to you, Jesus. And I renounce my claim on these things. You know, going back to this conference, men's conference we had, one of the stories that Neil Jeffrey told, he was a All-American quarterback at Baylor. And he talked about how for a couple of decades they had been playing and losing to a rival team. Year after year, game after game, before he even started going to Baylor. And his first three years at Baylor, they kept losing to this same rival three years in a row. And then finally his senior year, after I think it was 18 years of being beat by this team, they won 34 to 24. And he just said he felt like at the time it was going on, he felt like he was just living in a dream. And the crowd explodes, they rush the field, and he's lived his dream. And he says, just hours later, just hours after that victory, he drove by the stadium and he looked at the scoreboard, 34-24, and he said that he just felt empty. And he, he realized, you know, that that dream he had had, that dream that he had lived, when he lived it, it didn't satisfy him. And I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard just like that of people who said, I dreamed a dream and I lived my dream, but it didn't satisfy me. So we need to have dreams, but they have to be Christ-centered dreams. They have to be god Centered dreams, or they're not going to satisfy us. If I'm the hero of my dreams, that's not a God-centered dream. And that's one of the things that I have to renounce, and I have to ask God, give me new dreams, God, where you are the one who's glorified, where you are the hero, where I'm just the instrument. That's a hard thing to give up. That's a really hard thing to renounce. But Jesus says we need to do this if we want to be his disciples. Otherwise, we're just like salt that has lost its flavor. Now, as I as I close this morning, I want to take us to another passage in the New Testament which I think is the perfect complement to Luke 14. In fact, I think they're just necessary. They go together, and they're very important that I think we put them together. And I'll show you why. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul has something to say in terms of this business of renunciation. Because when we look at Luke chapter 14, it just seems like it's all about renunciation. It's all about sacrifice. And that's what's really important to Christ. 
But we need to remember what Paul says here. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We have to remember that it's about love. You know, God wants to make us rich. But not rich in the way the world counts riches. The world thinks of riches as BMWs and expensive restaurants and luxurious homes. Jesus wants to make us rich with the riches of the kingdom of God that never fade away and perish. He wants to give us joy. He wants to give us peace. He wants to give us faith. He wants to give us hope. He wants to give us love. He wants to make us rich. But sometimes our arms are so full of stuff, so full of our material stuff, so full of our own dreams and ambitions, that He doesn't have room to give it to us. And so Jesus says, be my disciple, let God make you rich, and follow me. And so I just wanted to encourage us this morning to remember that. That the cost of following Jesus, the cost of becoming a new creature in Christ is everything. It's everything. He demands all. But it's worth it. And there's, there's nothing else in life that will fill us, that will satisfy us, that will make us rich. But following Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, I thank you for giving us the gift of life and fellowship for the gift of music. And I pray for uh, our body here that's gathered this morning that you would unite us with your love, that you would grant us the grace to bear with one another's faults and failings, that you will make us your disciples, that we might know you in the power of your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.